Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 93 for the 3rd 3rd of November 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the importance, methods, and faults of the peer review process. Peer review is perhaps one of the most common aspects of the formal scientific process today, one of the more poorly understood processes that people think they understand, and the most common process that's railed against by the pseudoscience crowd. I thought I'd take a break from the more astronomy, geology, physics topics and talk about the how-we-know-what-we-know aspect of the podcast from a more fundamental standpoint for this episode. This is not only going to be for scientific papers, but also the other end of the process, grant review. I'm going to be talking about this from my own experience, and while what I talk about for papers is fairly uniform across most fields, it does vary significantly from different grant funding agencies. The concept of peer review lies in its name. Your work is reviewed by your peers. What this means is that the work you do, from your data gathering process to your data to your conclusions, is all examined and picked apart by people who know the field, ideally, as well as or better than you do. It's true that this is predominantly a negative enterprise, as in, it's much easier to write a review that finds lots of little things wrong than it finds lots of things right. For example, think of a rating on a popular service such as Yelp for a restaurant. It's much more common to say, service was slow, my food tasted like soap, my meat was raw in the middle, there were rats running around, my bread never came, my glass was never refilled with water, and nitpick little or even bigger things than to just post a review saying, everything was great, service was fast, food was good, prices were reasonable. There are only so many good things you can say, and I think I probably just covered most of them for a restaurant, but there are innumerable problems that you can come up with. It's an unfortunate fact of the process, and it's kind of just the way that we as humans work, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later when I talk about reviewing grant proposals. Another aspect of peer review is that it's most often anonymous. That is to protect the reviewer and to let them feel free to be more honest about what they say. In some cases, you can tell the person that you reviewed their paper. In fact, I've gotten some reviewers sending me their review of my paper at the same time that they send it to the journal because they know that journals tend to be slow getting back to authors and they don't really care that I know who they are. I've also had some reviewers contact me directly with questions. Other reviewers, however, simply remain anonymous. Personally, at this point in my career, since I'm relatively young and don't necessarily want to even possibly make enemies when I give something a negative review, I tend to remain anonymous, and that's why I remain anonymous, and that's why most people tend to remain anonymous. If you're a more senior researcher in the field, like you're a year away from retirement, typically don't really care. With that in mind, it's hard to get more specific about the process without talking about specifics, so I'm going to now talk about how this works with scientific papers, at least in my own experience. First off, there are the authors, those who write the paper that they want published. A paper can have anywhere from a single author to hundreds of authors. The corresponding author, usually the first author, then chooses a journal to submit their paper to. This is something that I wish I had a little bit more training in, as in how to select a journal. From my experience, what you want is to look at two different things. First is the journal's scope what they're actually interested in. It would make absolutely no sense for me to submit a paper about galactic superclusters to a journal about medical nursing. 
Second is the journal's impact factor. This is a little bit of a complicated number that indicates how many times papers published in that journal are cited by other papers, where the bigger number indicates more citations, so it's bigger is better. Science and nature, I've said many times on this podcast before, are the two most prestigious science journals in the world. You can quantify that by looking at their impact factors, where nature has an impact factor of 38.6 and science has an impact factor of 31.0. Those are pretty high, and there are a few that are larger than that, but those with larger impact factors are field-specific and pretty much exclusively medical journals. For example, the New England Journal of Medicine has an impact factor of 51.7, which is the highest of any journal that I've seen. Within your own specific field, the impact factor of the top journals will vary considerably. For example, in marine engineering, the highest impact factor journal is only 0.7. In my broad field of geoscience, the highest is nature geoscience, with an impact factor of 8.5, and before that journal came out a few years ago, the highest journal impact factor was Earth and Planetary Science Letters, with an impact factor of around 4 to 5. Alright, with that digression, back to peer review. You choose a journal, you submit your paper. Based on keywords and topic areas, your paper is usually assigned to an associate editor, or AE. That associate editor then finds reviewers. In some journals, like all the ones I submit to, you are required to recommend at least four, sometimes up to seven, reviewers. You can also specify some people who you do not want to review your paper, although there is no guarantee that the AE will actually listen to you. The reason for this blacklist is that it is inevitable that you will have someone who just doesn't like you or your work, and you don't think that you could get a fair review. For example, ever since I submitted a review for someone where I asked them to give more information on how they did something, and they then accused me of not having my own ideas and needing to copy from other people, hence why I remain anonymous now, I have blacklisted that particular person from reviewing any of my papers. After the associate editor has determined that the paper is actually appropriate for their journal, and they can always decide that it isn't, then the associate editor will contact potential reviewers, either from the provided list from knowing the field themselves, or even from just looking at who you tend to cite a lot in the paper. As a potential reviewer, they will usually send you the paper's abstract, the author list, and the institutes that the authors are from. The associate editor usually tries to not invite someone from the same institute as the authors because of possible conflicts of interests, but it's really up to the editor and the potential reviewer, and there are rarely blanket bans on such things, unlike for grants, which I'll talk about later. The reviewer can always accept, or can decline. If the reviewer accepts, they're usually given a few weeks and are expected to read through the paper with a fine-toothed comb. The way that I approach papers when I review them is that I default to thinking that the paper's good, there's nothing wrong with it, and it should be accepted. I then read through and look for reasons to falsify that null hypothesis. Remember grade school when your English or other language teacher picked through your essays and corrected spellings, grammar, and told you you didn't back up your ideas well enough? Well, that's what the peer review process is. At least for me, I print out the paper and I go through it with any color pen but red. I try to follow their methods, I try to look at their data, look at their figures, look at their graphs, look at their tables of information, 
and I say if they don't present enough data to justify their conclusions. I say if they haven't cited the relevant literature for that has been done before. I say if their conclusions don't jive with other published papers and they haven't adequately explained why they are different or why they reached different results. I tell them that if parts of the manuscript are not understandable, that they need to clarify them, or if their methods aren't standard and they haven't given enough information to justify them, they need to do so. If their figures aren't clear, if something should be moved to a table or appendix, all of that is fair game to a reviewer during peer review. The purpose is not to rail against them. The entire purpose of the process is to make sure that if they're adding to our base of scientific knowledge, as in a paper is going to be in a scientific journal, then it makes sense and they have adequately justified that addition to our scientific knowledge. If I get a paper that talks about a new technique for something and their new technique takes longer, requires more data, and gives a less accurate result than old techniques, I'm going to ask why this should be published because I don't think anyone would actually use it. If I get a paper that claims that Mars actually has no atmosphere, but they haven't discussed the decades of previous data that shows that Mars actually does have an atmosphere, I'm going to write in my review that their paper does not discuss contrary evidence or explain why their new data should supersede all of those old previous results. Then I write up my review and I send it back to the associate editor. When writing up a review, the format varies, but typically you give an overall recommendation, you give a brief summary of the paper so that everyone can see that yes, you actually understood it, and you give a brief summary of your actual review itself. Usually you start out by saying the author presents stuff in a, a clear way, assuming that that's true, and then you say, but, and then you list all the things that are wrong. Then you typically have a list of major issues, assuming there are some, and then you have a list of more minor concerns, like there should not be were were on line 593. So after I submit my review, the associate editor takes my review and usually reviews from other people. Typically, journals have more than one reviewer reviewing each paper. I submitted to one journal where the associate editor and three other reviewers reviewed my paper. I've submitted to two journals where only one reviewer reviewed my paper. Mostly, though, I've had two reviewers, and on papers that I've reviewed myself, I've usually been one of two reviews total. It's then the associate editor's job to read the reviews and make a decision. Reject the paper, send it back to the author with major revisions requested, moderate revisions, minor revisions, or accept the paper as is. It's very, very rare in a scientific peer-reviewed journal that you're going to get an accept as is. Sometimes if you're lucky, minor revisions. Usually though, you're going to get major revisions. The authors then usually have two months or so to revise their paper, and they don't have to. They can go to a different journal if there's one that's more appropriate or they think that they'll have an easier time. Or they can resubmit to the journal, and the key is to respond to every review point. I've submitted responses to reviewers that have been 24 pages long. You are expected to go through every point the reviewer raised and either explain that they misunderstood and so you shouldn't have to make any changes, or explain, yeah, I kind of screwed up there and I've done this extra work and I've made this change to the paper. In my limited experience with about two dozen different papers, typically it's half and half, and this is highly variable by author, by field, and by journal. Once done with this revision, you then resubmit your paper 
just as I happened to do with a paper earlier this evening that I'm recording this. Your resubmission has the revised manuscript and your response to the reviewers, which, again, the associate editor is supposed to read. If only minor revisions were required, sometimes a paper can just be accepted at that point. Otherwise, it goes back, again, to the reviewers who go over your response and the new manuscript. Sometimes this back-and-forth can take a while. I once started to submit a paper in late 2008, and it wasn't until mid-2010, almost two years later, that it was finally accepted after three back-and-forths with a very, very nitpicky reviewer critiquing my use of commas. Typically, an associate editor who's paying attention doesn't quite let it go to that level. After all, it is their decision, not the reviewer's, but it can happen. On the other hand, sometimes it's a very fast process. I once went from an idea for a paper through writing it to submitting it through reviews and revisions and paper accepted in the space of 10 weeks. That's very close to a record. If I had to summarize the purpose of peer review at this point for papers, it's not that peer review is meant to be a barricade. It's meant to be a process to ensure that if papers are going to be published in a professional journal, that reasonable attempts have been made to ensure that the results are accurate, clear, and make sense, or at least explain the results in the context of previous work. The process is different for grants. Every grant program is different from every other grant program, so I can only speak for NASA's grant review process because that's what I've been involved in. Over a year ago, I wanted to do a blog post on my experience sitting on a NASA grant review panel. That was nixed pretty much right away by the program officer for that program in order to protect confidentiality, which, at least for NASA, is part of the United States legal code. The review process is based on a provision in NASA Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement Part 1870.102, and the peer review process has to be fair, impartial, and confidential, not only in fact, but also in appearance. Confidentiality is stressed over and over and over and over and over again when on these panels, but since I've now been on several, and have been an external reviewer for others, I'm reasonably comfortable discussing the experience without fear that I'll be letting on which panels I was a reviewer for. To start with, submitting a grant is not dissimilar from submitting a paper. That was a double negative there, so it is similar to submitting a paper, except that in this case, it's much more high stress because you're asking for money to put a roof over your head as opposed to just trying to get your research out there. The process of finding reviewers is much more delicate than finding reviewers for academic papers. Conflicts of interest are taken much more seriously because, again, of that provision that not only can there not be a conflict of interest in actuality, but there can't even be the appearance of a conflict of interest, or COI for short. What a COI is, at least for NASA, is when someone is from the same organization as anyone who gets money from the grant, has been an advisor or advisee, has had that role, for anyone who would get money on the grant within the past three years, is a collaborator on the proposal or has collaborated with the principal investigator on the proposal in the last two years, or is related to anyone who's getting money on the proposal or is a close friend or adversary, or could benefit monetarily in any way, shape, or form from the proposal's success or failure. Again, even if you don't feel conflicted, in order to make sure that there isn't even the appearance of conflict of interests, if you're on the panel and that proposal comes up, you have to leave the room. Or if you are an external reviewer, you can't review that proposal. It's not just to protect you, 
or the proposal team, but it's also to protect NASA, and conflict interests are taken very seriously. And they can be a royal pain to deal with and figure out, but the bottom line is really follow the money. If there's any way that you could in any form benefit or your institution could benefit from the success or failure of the proposal, then it's a conflict of interest. With that in mind, a panel is selected, and panelists are expected to review several proposals. It varies considerably by program and funding agency, but I can say that in my experience, I've generally been expected to be the chief reviewer for about three proposals, secondary for just as many, and tertiary for also about three proposals for any given review cycle. In addition to the panelists, external reviewers are asked to also review some proposals. They can accept or decline, although I've always tried to just accept if I've been asked, just to get more experience with the process and also to do my duty for the community and to be able to put it on my annual evaluation as professional service. I list this podcast under Education and Public Outreach Service. In discussions with my father, who's in the medical research field and has sat on a lot of National Institutes of Health as an NIH panels, the NASA process is very dissimilar from NIH, which is why in this discussion, although it's probably broadly applicable to multiple fields in general concept, it's really specific to NASA. With NASA, we sit around a table and go through the reviews. The chief reviewer is in charge of presenting the proposal, their review of it, and summarizing the external reviews. The secondary reviewer then gives their assessment. And despite what people may think, the more reviews, the better. If there's a lot of agreement, then that makes things easy. If there are a range of opinions, then we have to go through and figure out why. For example, do the people who ranked it high, did they just miss something? Are they not experts in that field and so they just weren't aware that this, that, or the other thing is actually wrong? Or is it that the people who ranked it really low are quibbling over things that really should be fought over in the literature rather than doom a proposal? Or perhaps they're research adversaries. In the end, the panel votes and then moves on to the next proposal. After voting, the chief reviewer is tasked with writing up a consensus review and then sanitizing it beyond the point of it being helpful, which is a personal pet peeve, but perhaps best left out of this podcast episode. This consensus review is completely anonymous. All of the individual reviews, not only from the panel, but also from the externals, are destroyed pretty much after this process is finished. The review has to go through not only the chief reviewer, but also the secondary, then the entire panel, then the panel chair, then another panel for consistency, then back to your panel, then through the panel chair, then to the program officer, then there are usually a few iterations between the chief reviewer and the program officer. It's very back and forth in this process, and this is where what I mentioned maybe 15 minutes ago really comes to bear in terms of balancing the good and the bad. Pretty much every panel that I've been on has always had an issue coming up with good things to say about the proposal. Now that might sound kind of mean, but again, think of this restaurant analogy. It's very easy to come up with a lot of bad things to say, and hard to come up with non-generic good things to say. For grant proposals, it's very easy to say, well, this is actually a wrong technique, or we don't think that you can actually do this, or you didn't cite such and such work that's been done in the past, and so this work wouldn't actually add anything new, or this wasn't well explained, or you spent too much on travel. 
but you can only say so many times in so many different ways that the team has a publication history that shows they are knowledgeable in the work they propose to do. I mean, it's this is why I say that stuff gets sanitized beyond the point of being kind of useful. Now, for confidentiality purposes, I'll use a review of one of my own proposals, one that the panel really, really, really did not like. Now, the way to take this is not that I necessarily screwed up or the panel was being mean, but that I didn't explain myself well enough, justify things well enough, that a panel could easily pick up on it and easily see that this is the next best thing to slice bread. So the only strengths that they listed were, quote, the PI and the investigator team have demonstrated expertise in this area. Also, the quote, the proposal addresses a compelling aspect of planetary science that is essential to advancing knowledge of this field. Again, those are fairly generic, and these were only listed as two minor strengths. On the other hand, they identified five major weaknesses. One was, the proposal does not attempt to justify attempting to construct globally comprehensive databases of secondary craters from large craters on Mars, Mercury, and the Moon. So they really didn't like the main idea. Second was, the proposal did not discuss how image resolution limits would affect the derived statistics. So they didn't like the method. Another was, the proposal did not clearly explain how target property differences would be determined from the crater statistics. So we didn't explain how the data gathered would relate directly to the analysis that we wanted to perform. Another was, the proposal did not contain essential details on the approach for the laboratory part. And this is the case where we think, after we got this review back, that they were looking for multiple reasons not to rate this proposal very highly. That last point is really a subset of the third one that I read, that we didn't explain really how the data gathering process was going to be linked to the analysis. But again, this is something that you can quibble with amongst yourselves, but in the end, you just have to better write the proposal for next time in order to get a better score. The point of going through this is not only to give you a flavor for how feedback or how these reviews are written, but also how it can be hard to come up with good things to say about work that has yet to be done. But it's really easy to come up with bad things to say about how things were not described well enough to justify funding your proposal instead of another, especially these days when the stats for NASA are about one in eight proposals that are submitted are going to get funded. With grants, it is true that the peer review process is much more of a gatekeeper than with papers, and that's very much a symptom of very limited funds. With all of that in mind, and this non-conventional episode running kind of long, I want to briefly go over the real problems with peer review, as in not the fake ones that pseudoscientists point out. One is that reviewers, at least for papers, are unpaid. This has been a gripe for a long time, considering that journals charge hundreds of dollars to publish your paper and then put it behind a paywall. But the people that make that possible, the reviewers, don't see any of that money. Consequently, there are prominent people in many fields who have refused to review papers anymore. Another complaint is that peer review, while it's anonymous or can be anonymous for reviewers, is not anonymous for authors. So while they see my face when I submit a paper, I can't see theirs. And if my paper is presenting great work, but that reviewer happens to not like my cousin's boyfriend's former college roommate's pets, well, then I might not get a fair review. But if they hadn't known who I was, it would have been perhaps a very positive review. 
Finally, for grants, the two main things that people point to are first, that there's no rebuttal, and second, that the panel is rarely made of experts in that exact field. For the rebuttal part, well, the process of publishing papers almost always involves back and forth between the authors and the reviewers, you don't get that for grants. Once the decision is made, that's it, and your only chance for rebuttal is to modify your grant and resubmit next year. Here's also where I've been told that NIH is very different from NASA. For NIH, if you resubmit, then you have to actually respond to the review from the previous year, point by point, just like with a paper review. With NASA, there is no such requirement, and unless you happen to have a reviewer who saw the proposal the previous year, which can happen but tends to be rare, then the people reviewing will have no idea that this was submitted previously, unless you specifically put that in the grant that it's a resubmission. For the expert part, especially for relatively small fields like astronomy and geophysics where you have maybe a few thousand people to pull from as opposed to medical field where there are hundreds of thousands of people to pull from, it's best explained by this thought experiment. A normal researcher is typically supported by several part-time grants. Each of these are typically from a very small subset of NASA programs, and their expiration dates are staggered. This means that pretty much every year, you will be writing a new proposal to one of those very few programs, or many of those very few programs which are relevant to your work. So will the guy or gal in the next office who does work very similar to you. So will the guy or gal at another institution who does very similar work to you. Because of this, the people who are best able to evaluate your work because they know the most about it will have conflicts of interest and can't review your proposal because they're submitting to the same program. This means that any panel will almost necessarily be handicapped because we'll usually be in a related field, but we won't have the years of experience that you do to best evaluate your work. For example, I study impact craters. Specifically, I study crater populations and statistics. When I'm on a panel, I'm usually asked to read any crater-related proposal, and that could mean someone is going to do fieldwork on a crater on Earth and to use this as an analog for craters on Mars. I've never done fieldwork. For another example, I wrote a paper once, back in 2010, about Martian volcanism. On another panel I was on, I ended up being the secondary reviewer on all volcano-related proposals, when I've never really studied volcanism in my research. It's unfortunate, but that's the way that things are. In those cases, you have to carefully read the background information, sometimes go to the references, and draw in your knowledge from basic principles to determine feasibility. And that's also where the panel really relies on external reviews from people who know the field better than they do. It's a problem, though, and while there are workarounds, there is no perfect solution. Now, one might think that the pseudoscientists rely on those things to pick apart peer review and complain about it. One would be wrong. The two people that I've heard rail against peer review, and this is in my own listenings since I'm sure there are many others, are the Skeptico podcast host Alex Tsakiris and the Coast to Coast AM science advisor Richard C. Hoagland. For the former, Alex seems to misunderstand peer review in two ways. I pointed out in a 2009 blog post that Alex was happily trumpeting preliminary results from his psychic experiment on his podcast, pointing out that the results were showing psychic stuff is real. Then, we never heard anything again. If he had gone through peer review 
and apparently even going through his own review process later on, he would never have talked about these early results as if they were real because people would have questioned his methods and his sample size. The second way that he seems to miss the point is that he once stated, Again, my methodology, just so you don't think I'm stacking the deck, is really simple. I just go to Amazon and I search for anesthesia books and I start emailing folks until one of them responds. End quote. In this particular case, he was talking about anesthesiology. In other words, his way of finding experts, and reliance on individual experts is another issue of Alex's, but unrelated to this episode, is that he goes to popular books and emails people waiting for someone to bite. Peer-reviewed papers are picked apart by people who study the same thing that you do and are familiar with other work in the area. A book is not. A book is read by the publishing company's editor or editors unless it's self-published, in which case it's not even read by someone else, and sometimes it's not even read by the editors, and then it's printed. There is generally absolutely zero peer review for books, and I'm not talking about professional academic books here, I'm talking about popular books. And so Alex going to Amazon.com to find people who've written on some subject will not get an accurate sampling. Even if one uses the quote-unquote best rankings on Amazon because, for example, right now, Mike Barra's Ancient Aliens on Mars is somehow ranked number one in the astronomy slash Mars section on Amazon. Published books on a fringe science topic are done by people who generally have been wholeheartedly rejected by the scientific community for their methods, their data gathering techniques, and or their conclusions not being supported by the data. But they continue to believe that their interpretations and methods, etc., are correct and hence, instead of learning from the peer review process and tightening their methods, trying to bring in other previous results and looking at their data in light of everything else that's been done, they publish a book that simply bypasses the last few steps of the scientific process. Same can be said with, for example, creationists or intelligent design people trying to get into the classroom. The same goes with Richard C. Hoagland. It's been a while since I've had a Coast to Coast AM clip, so for those of you who were going through withdrawal, here's one to perhaps satiate you for a while. When you follow your curiosity, which is what science is supposed to be, it's not supposed to be a club or a union or a pressure group that doesn't want to get too far out of the box because of what the other guys will think about you. You know, this, this concept of peer review, which Tom and I had long, long discussions about over the years, is the thing which is killing science. It's not the peer review so much as the invisible, anonymous peer review, where basically before a paper can get published, and in the next hour or so we can get into a very interesting specific right in front of us example right now. You know, you have to go through so many hurdles, and there are so many chances for guys who have it in for you, who don't like you, or who don't like the idea that you're trying to propose in a scientific publication, can basically, you know, stick you in the back with a shiv, and you never know. You know, the, the, one of the tenets of the U.S. Constitution which is coming back in vogue, by the way. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is that you have the right to confront your accuser. In the peer review system, which has now been set up for science, not only in the U.S., but worldwide, the scientist who is basically on trial for an idea, because that's what it is, by any other name, it's really a trial, is, is attacked by invisible accusers called referees, 
who get a chance to shaft the idea, kill the idea, nix the paper, tell the editor of whatever journal, oh, this guy's a total wacko, don't do, you know, mm-hmm. five light years near him, and you never have the opportunity to confront your accuser and demand that he be specific as to what he or she has found wrong with your idea. I don't know what journals he's talking about or what personal experience Richard has had in this area. I would think very, very, very little, if any, personal experience, but he does talk a good game. For all the ones that I know, his claims are wrong. Just as with the U.S. court system, you have appeals in journals. If the first reviewer does not think that your paper should get in, then you can ask the editor to get another opinion. You're never sunk just because one reviewer doesn't like you and or your ideas. And I don't know what reviews he's talking about with papers. In every review that I've written and every review that I've seen, the reviewer is usually very, very, very specific about their issues with the paper. As to the anonymity, while I personally don't like it at times, it's necessary, as I discussed earlier. Without a referee having the ability to remain anonymous, they cannot always offer a candid opinion. They may be afraid of reprisals if they find errors. I mean, after all, grants are awarded on peer review process as well. They may also not want to hurt someone's feelings. They may have their own work on the subject and they think that maybe you should cite it, but they don't want to appear narcissistic in recommending it. In short, there are many very good reasons to remain anonymous to the authors. However, they are not anonymous to the editor or the editorial staff. If there are problems with a reviewer consistently shooting down ideas that they have otherwise vested interest in, then the editors will see that and they will remove the reviewer. Something my former office mate is fond of saying is, science is not a democracy, it's a meritocracy. Not every idea deserves equal footing. If I come up with a new idea that explains the universe as being created by a giant potato with its all-seeing eyes, and if anyone gets that reference from a 1990s television show, let me know, then my new idea that I just made up should not deserve equal footing with the ones that are backed up by centuries of separate, independent evidence. The latter has earned its place. The former has not. That is something that most fringe researchers seem to fail to grasp. Until they have indisputable evidence for their own ideas, or at least evidence that's as good as the evidence that we have for the other ideas, and that evidence can't be explained by the current paradigm, then they should not necessarily be granted equal footing. Hoagland's pareidolia of faces on Mars does not deserve an equal place next to the descriptions of the Martian atmosphere backed by telescopic, satellite, and in-situ measurement from landers and rovers. Mike Barra's faulty explanation of eccentricity and opposition and various other basic astronomy terms would be lambasted in peer review. Instead, he goes to Adventures Unlimited Press and gets his book out lickety-split. By way of wrap-up for this different kind of episode, I think it's important to again stress that peer review does have issues, but we try to make the best of an imperfect system because there are no better alternatives at this time. Even after peer review happens and a paper may be accepted, review continues by other work using it and finding it to be reliable or not, just like drugs continue to be monitored after they're released and may be recalled if unforeseen problems emerge. What peer review typically is good at is weeding out particularly bad research and ideas that don't have solid evidence to back them up. That's one reason why pseudoscientists in particular tend to strongly dislike the process. They simply can't pass it. 
Their ideas are so tenuous, do not have enough good evidence to support them, cannot adequately address criticisms, and or cannot explain why previous observations did not find it or found the opposite, that they are not accepted. And, in the mark of a pseudoscientist rather than a scientist, they complain about the system and go off onto a late-night talk show to spread their ideas rather than take the criticism with a thick skin and work to better their evidence. The one piece of feedback that I'm going to address in this episode relates to what I promised a few weeks ago with John E. Brandenburg, the Mars Was Murdered guy from episode 86. He and I went back and forth over a few days in early November, and his three main issues with my episode were that his claim about Xenon-129 being evidence for nuclear weapons was true, according to him, that he was the first to suggest that Mars had an ocean, and third, that he really did complete Einstein's work. For the first point, John could not show me any direct place that stated Xenon-129 is produced in a nuclear weapon event in any significant quantity, which was what I said in my episode. He pointed to a lot of papers that said Xenon-129 existed on Mars, he pointed to a lot of papers saying that it's produced in supernova and various other things, but nowhere did he actually say anything or find anything that said Xenon-129 is a byproduct of a nuclear fusion or fission bomb. It simply wasn't there. He also could not point to a blast site that made sense, point out other radioactive byproducts that would have to have happened in a nuclear bomb event, or pretty much anything else. He did not respond to my last email for more information, so if he does, I'll update you all, but it's been about 20 days. Second is his claim that he was the first to propose that the northern hemisphere of Mars once held an ocean. I pointed to other abstracts that did suggest this before him, but he said that they did not explicitly put the pieces together like he did. I told him, I think that it's a bit of semantics as to being direct about it versus having the information there but not explicitly stating it, but I have no problem with bringing it up and letting you all decide for yourselves. Third was the whole thing about Einstein. He pointed to several papers he wrote on the issue, including some that made it into journals. I don't know if they're peer-reviewed or not. However, the only people citing him is himself. Nobody else. One would think that if these papers are so revolutionary, and if they were correct, that other people would take notice and use them. They aren't. So I said that at the very least, since theoretical cosmology is not my area of expertise, I'm content to let history decide if he was correct, but at the moment, it has all the hallmarks of pseudoscience. Finally, for announcements, remember that you can find the podcast online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo Astronomy, and me personally on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 93rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. 
If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave comments anywhere. On the comment page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page of the podcast, and you can also tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm about to get on a plane in a few hours and might actually type up some responses for the last two months. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on pretty much any portal that offers it. iTunes is the big one, but there are other ones out there. There are also many internet fora where they usually have a miscellaneous board. Feel free to start a topic and say, hey, this podcast is great. Y'all should listen to it. 